When Dorothy's student wins a writing contest, it isn't only positive attention the award brings. Sure, it's a great opportunity for Rose, Blanche's Vinderfrigen, to plan a party, but they learn Mario is in the United States illegally and might be deported. The only thing Dorothy can do is talk Mario into facing the courts for a judgment day, not hiding away in the movies like a running man. Will Rose's servitude really clear her guilt for losing Blanche's earrings? Will Dorothy be able to help keep Mario in the country? Was that a 69 joke? All of that and more in today's episode, Dorothy's Prized Pupil. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go, I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. It must be Ellen behind the wheel of that blue Oldsmobile. Looks like I'm not the only one getting nostalgic because she's bursting into the driveway at maniacal speeds. Once we're in the house, spotting Sophia at the end of the hall dressed in an unusually grandmotherly-looking outfit of a pale pink floral dress with a crocheted wrap adorning her shoulders, we learn it was Rose pumping the brakes outside. In her purple ensemble with white drooped collared shirt, Rose is equally surprised to see Sophia putting on white gloves. While she has good reason for her formality, President Reagan, which means First Lady Nancy Reagan, is in town. Sophia and her friends are headed to their hotel to send their regards, or perhaps to get in contact with her decorator. I just loved her and Father Knows Best. Oh, no, you're confused, Sophia. Jane Wyman was in Father Knows Best. Jane Wyatt had nearly 100 credits through a career that started in 1934, some being in St. Elsewhere, Love Boat, Star Trek IV, Fantasy Island, Happy Days, The Virginian, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, but the role she was best known for was as Margaret Anderson in Father Knows Best. With a career spanning from 1932 to 1993, Jane Wyman hit her stride, starring in award-nominated films through the 40s and 50s. 1946's The Yearling earned her a nomination for a Best Actress Oscar. 1948's Johnny Belinda and 1951's Blue Veil both earned Oscar noms and wins for Golden Globe Best Actress. During this time, she was also known for her third marriage to then-actor Ronald Reagan. Their marriage lasted from 1940 to 1949, ending because, of all things, she was Republican and he was too Democratic. Their divorce led to Reagan becoming the first divorced president and she was the first former wife of a president. She never spoke publicly about his presidency or politics. Perhaps he was finally more aligned with her views. Later in life, she would experience another surge in her career when she worked on the primetime soap opera, Falcon Crest. That old crow from Falcon Crest? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's who I'm talking about, but let's not resort to name-calling. Anyway, they got divorced, and Nancy Davis did become Nancy Reagan in 1951 and remained by Ronald's side until his death in 2004. Looking at pictures of Nancy and Jane, it's clear Ronald had a type. 
Wow. He did like a larger headed woman and they both had kind of a very, I don't know if it's a heart shaped face or just kind of a very distinct look that their pictures side by side definitely are like. Beelzebub. Oh my God. From All About Eve? No, no, you're confused again. Nancy Davis was also an actress before becoming Mrs. Reagan, but she was no actress when compared to Betty Davis. She had those eyes and those fantastic characters and unforgettable films under her belt. Some of her more popular films were All About Eve, The Watcher in the Woods, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Dark Victory, and my personal favorite, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. The one who beat her kids with wire hangers? No, 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 no. Okay. Speaking of Baby Jane, Betty co-starred with Joan Crawford, of which Betty had a notorious feud. Even though Betty Davis was the meanie in Baby Jane, it was Blanche, no, not our Blanche, but Joan Crawford's Blanche, who was more of the real-life meanie. She even inspired the book Mommy Dearest, written by her daughter. It would eventually be turned into a film starring Faye Dunaway as Joan, who would iconically scream, No wire hangers ever! The fat cop from Highway Patrol? (laughs) That was Broderick Crawford, who was a stage, radio, and screen actor who had only played bit roles until his Oscar-winning performance as Willie Stark in All the King's Men. He then starred in the high-action series Highway Patrol. was married to Broderick Crawford? (laughs) And Mondale still lost? What an idiot. Yeah, Democrat Walter Mondale had no hope in beating incumbent Reagan, earning only 13 electoral votes to Reagan's 525. Holy shit, man. (laughs) I didn't know that. I didn't know that was a blowout. It was a sweep. Wow. They loved Reagan in the 80s. Before any more name confusion can be had, Blanche enters the room to distract us all in a stunning red dress, of which she's seeking compliments, comments, and overall adoration from Rose and Sophia. Sophia has no input and isn't concerned as to why it matters how Blanche looks. Within the hour, it'll be a wad of fabric on the floor next to a bottle of booze. Unashamed as always, Blanche laughs Sophia off. Going back to the name game, Sophia quizzes Blanche as to who the first lady is. Once she hearing Nancy Reagan, Sophia's memory comes back when she realizes the petite woman Reagan assists in and out of the helicopter is his wife, Nancy. The thread of the conversation getting tangled, Sophia ended up thinking Rose thought Reagan was married to Broderick Crawford. And with that, she's out of there. Finally able to give her opinion on the tight-waisted, high-slit, low-necked dress, Rose has one word for it, risque. Blanche has two words for that, thank you. Having Rose assist with clasping her necklace, Blanche asks for her earrings to be returned from Rose, who had borrowed them the previous week. Well, that's impossible for her to do, as they were already returned to Blanche's room. Well, Blanche needs no further information as to when that happened or where they were placed, because Rose has a habit of losing everything from car keys to cars to concert tickets. What concert, do you ask? Why, none other than Spanish singer and father to Enrique, Julio Iglesias. With that kind of evidence, it's easy to see why Blanche would assume the earrings were gone. 
Rose doesn't fault her for doubting, but she knows she put those earrings back and she's going to find them and prove it. We'll never know what time it is as Blanche worries about the earring search making her late for her six o'clock party. Rose tries to calm her, making the point that she has more than enough time. But this only proves Blanche's point because Rose has lost her watch. We can only assume it isn't too late in the day because Dorothy is in the kitchen working with a student. It's our first time getting to see Mrs. Bornack in action. Dorothy, in her high-collared bright blue shirt with the classic off-center buttons, is tutoring young Mario on algebra. As Mario gives Blanche a compliment with his words and his dilated pupils, she not only takes the compliment from the child and doesn't realize just how va-va-va-voom that dress is, given the circumstances, she actually ups the compliment by saying it would look even better with her lost earrings. The young, adorable, charming Mario is being played by, of course, 14-year-old Mario Lopez, a.k.a. A.C. Slater. Even though he was barely a teen, this was not his first acting role. Three years prior, he had appeared in Simon & Simon. With roles in Kids Incorporated and on The Girls, he then landed his beloved role of A.C. Slater, the jock, dancer, romancer of Saved by the Bell. That character kept him working from 1989 to 1996 and in the recent reboot. Since the 1980s, he's been working steadily. Besides Pacific Blue, The Bold and the Beautiful, George Lopez, Robot Chicken, Nip Tuck, Sesame Street, Grease Live, NCIS, New Orleans, General Hospital, Jane the Virgin, This Is Us, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Rook, and a slew of Hallmark holiday movies. His adorable dimples, heart-melting smile, and endearing charm has led to hosting gigs with Extra, Access Hollywood, The X Factor, and Miss America. He now has his own daily podcast, On with Mario Lopez. And he's a cheater. You know... <laughs> I think we've talked about it before how like for some reason certain scandals or events or little things just like if you had a mental dictionary in your head that would be the photo with that person like that's the the go-to fact and yeah with him it's oh yeah you cheated on the Doritos girl. It's just not very surprising. It's, I think that's maybe it is yeah. is why it stays with people. Yeah. Is that it that seems like something this unfortunately was... that Mario Lu Lopez would do yeah. and did. Like he was so charming and sweet and never had any kind of scandal, which you would think for someone that was like the jock dude. Those so dimples. Was, I know. So he was like the sweet boy. And then he got engaged to Allie Landry, the Doritos girl, for mm -hmm. anyone that remembers those commercials. And it was like, oh, my God, amazing. What a perfect couple. And this was, you know, early 2000s. So it's like Jessica Simpson time, Nick Lachey, like adorable couple time. And then, yeah, he cheated on her at his bachelor party. Called off the wedding. Broke everyone's hearts. What a tool. Yeah. Boo. <laughs> but then you grow up and it's like, hey, you don't know why that happened. Maybe it's for the best they didn't get married. Obviously, it wasn't maybe a, a great relationship or yeah. not healthy or whatever. But that is so stuck in my brain. <laughs> it's the only thing I think about. And there's like an image of him from Saved by the Bell dancing at the max that I can see in my head. <laughs> when he's got like one of those wrestler tank tops that almost covers the nipples, but from the middle. Yeah, like gray slacks <laughs> that are like super tapered hammer, at the ankle. And hammer, hammer it, pants. Yeah. Unbelievable. The wettest hair on TV. <laughs> ever. He kept it wet. Hey, oh. I mean. <laughs> 
Did, which, who was the late? Who was your lady of choice? Oh, Kelly. Mm. Oh, and actually, uh, Tori, leather jacket Tori, when she was oh, there for a little of bit, course. was you love Tori. my favorite. Because she, she had that vibe. Just like Joe in Facts of Life. <laughs> she had that she had that yeah. strong masculine Just vibe. Just put that a leather, like. leather jacket on her. <laughs> roll, roll up those sleeves, maybe. Hold a, hold a wrench near a motorcycle. <laughs> Boyoyoing. <laughs> I remember seeing Zach Morris and... It was like every hormone in my body woke up and was like, oh, that's what all this is. And I became obsessed with trying to catch it when I could. And I remember I even had to go with my mom to one of her friend's house. But it was during Saved by the Bell time at like 3 p.m. And I was like, do you have a TV? And they did in like a back bedroom. Like, oh, can I just go watch something real quick? Do you mind if we go shoot up in the bathroom real quick? And I just sat and stared. I never thought the show was even that funny. I thought it was always really like juvenile humor. But boy, did I like watching him. Mark Paul, Gmail us. Yeah. (laughs) Wrapping up the tutoring lesson, Mario can't help but bemoan over having to learn math, a question we have all had as students and I'm pretty sure most continue to have as adults. Dorothy has a very good explanation for why he has to learn math, though. It's because she had to learn how to be a teacher, and so he has to deal with it. Before they can wrap up for the day, Dorothy is double-checking his English work. With a passionate detailing of an American experience at the movies, Dorothy's reading of Mario's work shows us he's a good student and talented writer. He's also a better expressionist, as he felt it would have had more impact if he had been the one reading it. When Rose enters to find friend of the family Mario, she offers him an after-school snack. Coco, did you have a go-to after-school snack? Were you an after-school snacker? I often had a super pretzel Oh. when I would get home. Actually, two or three. <laughs> I was chunky. You had a lot of feelings. I did, and I had to chew them out. <laughs> Yeah, but a delicious, soft, microwave-cooked pretzel with that rock salt on it. (laughs) Super pretzels, Gmail us. Let's get a promotion going. I love those twisty boys. You do. And girls. (laughs) As excited as Mario was to accept the snack offer, when he learns it's a Rose special, herring sandwich on raisin bread, he suddenly realizes he's going to be late for the bus. Unable to prove Mario a liar due to her missing watch, Rose simply tells him goodbye. With an adios teach and a see you tomorrow a la espanol, Mario leaves. The second he's out of the house, Dorothy excitedly tells the girls she's considering entering his essay in the district writing contest. Blanche thinks it's a great idea, adding how lovely of a child he is. Dorothy agrees she's wild about the kid. He's totally engaged when they're working together, and he shows a clear hunger for learning. As a former educator, I know exactly what she's talking about. It's not always the ones interested in learning that you fall in love with, but it's kind of hard to explain. It's like a love you have for a friend or coworker, a feeling of protection, care, connectedness, a feeling like you're cut from the same cloth, and maybe since this kid has no other cloth mates in life yet, you can help get him through one stage of life until he can find more friends like him. 
Working in low-income, high-violence areas and in extreme mental health facilities, that feeling that you might connect with a student in a way that makes your lives easier, if only for a day, hour, or few minutes, is what it's all about. That, and when they do grasp a subject and they get excited about it, they feel better about themselves and things don't seem as hard. Those are the reasons. Certainly not the looks of, I'm going to kill you, or for Dorothy, slash your tires. Over time, you do recognize that look pretty quickly, the I'm going to take a swing at you look. I never had a threat of my tires being slashed, but out of the millions of death threats and names being called, I think having a kid scream at me, I'm going to crucify you, while being put into a restraint during a Christmas party was one of the highlights. Perhaps it's time for Blanche to mix up the outfit jewelry combinations. When she asks to borrow Dorothy's earrings in lieu of her pair that is still on the lamb, Dorothy's confused why she wouldn't wear the ones she always did with that dress. A perfect Blanche moment. She wears the dress so often her roommates know the jewelry combination, yet she still needed compliments and approval after putting it on. Why is it the most narcissistic ones are also the most unsure? Having Rose take the heat again for the earrings, she swears they just aren't in that house. She has searched everywhere. She went to such searching lengths, she found the concert tickets. Granted, the concert had passed, but boy, did they have good seats. Adding salt and alcohol to an already wounded Rose, Blanche tells her not to worry about it. They were just earrings. Earrings that were handmade by her great-grandmother who fashioned them from the bullets that killed her great-grandfather in the Civil War and had been passed through generation after generation, but it's fine. It's nice to see Blanche, well, any character really, be clearly upset about the sentimental value of something, but to not be mad at the person who lost it or make a big deal about it. She's sad, but she knows it's like just stuff. That forgiveness won't cut it for Rose, though. She has to do something to repent, to make up for the loss. That something is to be a Windenfrügen for Blanche for a whole week. Sure, a woman can be a Windenfrügen for another woman, but only if they're the same height. Spicy joke. That's a 69 joke. I mean, they're, they're joking that, like, can a woman do that for another woman? And she says if they're the same height. Which makes but you they think know of a it's configuration nonsense. of some sort, and what else could it be? I think it's a spicy little joke, and it's nice. <laughs> or we're just filthy, and we turn everything into that, <laughs> which is also nice. <laughs> After joking about the nonsense word, Dorothy calmly and politely asks for clarification by yelling, "What the hell is a vendorfurken?" There's no telling what language this was in, as the Scandinavian word for servant is... Rose's little pronunciation and the hilarity surrounding it spawned a horrible era for anyone that knew me. It was this episode and the amount of Herberblerger language that had me and my friends giggling for days, repeating the words and adding the Scandinavian flair to anything we could. Then, as it does for any older teen slash young adult, it stuck and spread like wildfire. Within a few months, my friends and I were speaking our own language, mixed in, of course, with internet videos, Pee Wee Herman jokes, and the soundtrack of Weezer to sound like this. I'm a rebel dirty learner. That's from Pee Wee. 
the internet aspect came to play as Irma Gerd was happening as well. And Coco, I think you would have hated me back then. I often disagree with that sentiment, but on this one, you are correct. <laughs> it got to a point where my dad, um, I, I want to say it was Matt and I were in the dining room and we were just Your speaking. Your best friend, Matt. My best friend, Matt. Hey, Matt. And we were just talking about like, I don't know, going to the grocery store to get lottery tickets and snacks. <laughs> and it would be like, you weren't going to start, get tickets and snacks. I mean, that was how we spoke. <laughs> and my dad was just like, what the hell are you guys saying? <laughs> he had had it. And it, it still comes up. It still happens in the house. Yeah. And it's tough. I'm like, can you just, you always have to repeat what you were actually saying because I need clarification to actually know what I need to do. And or I feel answer. bad because I'm not doing it on purpose. It's like, it's, I don't think it's, it's cute. very, yeah. I'm not like, oh, this will be funny or he'll have to ask what that means or like, I'll say this word weird. It's like in my brain, that's just how I say stuff. So I'm like, oh, he's in the turlet. Yeah. It's, it's very clear that it's involuntary. Uh, also when your brother does it too, it's just involuntary. <laughs> I th- I'm pretty sure turlet is how everyone says it yeah. now in this home. Yeah. So I got it too. And it's all thanks to this episode. That's really funny. Yeah. Perhaps this is just a made up word in the family. Being a Vindifurken worked as a way to make amends. Ever since Uncle Ben lost Lars's leg on the day of the big sledding or toboggan race, Lars lost, and Uncle Ben's guilt was just too much. Even when Lars played it cool and said he was over it, Ben knew that that wasn't true, mostly because Lars was constantly trying to hit him with his bike, but as a one-legged man, he just wasn't able to pedal fast enough to cause real damage. Thus, the Servant for a Week plan was born, and it solved all of their problems. With that story and Rose's incessant begging, Blanche agrees to the arrangement. It must be six o'clock, as Blanche is running out the doors to not be late for her date. Date or party? Party or date? Which is it, Blanche? Now assigned to duty, Rose rushes to go assist her finish up. But before she can, Dorothy has just one question. The question we've all had since hearing of Uncle Ben and Lars's leg fiasco. What happened to the leg? It turned out Uncle Ben had been setting up the bleachers for the annual Edelweiss and Jarlsberg Choral Festival. He had somehow come into possession of the leg, which was handy as he used it to fight off wolves during the setup. Edelweiss, Edelweiss, every morning you greet me. Not sure if that festival was an actual choir singing the Sound of Music song Edelweiss or if it was to celebrate the flower Edelweiss and the Norwegian Jarlsberg cheese. Jarlsberg should be stored in the refrigerator. If I'm serving it on a platter with some fruit and crackers, I usually take it out about an hour beforehand to bring it to room temperature. Sliced Jarlsberg from the deli can be returned to its resealable packaging, but shrink-wrapped cheese once opened should not be. Once you open a package of cheese, it should be placed in a resealable plastic bag or covered container without the original packaging. The reason for this is the bacteria that can accumulate on the outside of the packaging. Think about all the people that have picked up that package before you did. Once opened, if you include that same packaging in with the cheese, you're just exposing your cheese directly to all that bacteria. Before Betty worked with her, Mary Tyler Moore was the co-star of The Dick Van Dyke Show. This was only 20 years before the girls were on television. Back then, it was a huge deal that Laura Petrie, a.k.a. Mary, wore capri pants. Sponsors were worried about the k 
cupping under her butt. To make everyone happy, she was allotted one scene per episode where she could wear pants. One scene for pants. And now here we are, 20 years after that, 35 years ago, and we find Sophia in a muumuu, Blanche in a sundress holding a parasol, and Rose in short for then shorts showing off those gams on national television. <coughs> Catching some sun on the lanai, Sophia is worried about being out too long. She has good reason to. Overexposure to the sun can lead to heat rash, sunburn, and melanoma. But they needn't worry about the sun. They've only been out, well, by watchless Rose's best guess, a few minutes. Besides, when you're in your 80s, do you really need to worry about wrinkles? At any age, sun exposure can lead to signs of aging, just like wrinkles. I mean, it's not like Tan Mom looked older than 44, which was how old she was when she was famous a decade ago. It's Tan Mom, bitch. Are you ready? It's Patricia, bitch. Here I come. I've got a message. It's not because she's older that she isn't worried about wrinkles. Sophia isn't worried about them because she has more pressing matters, like the outdoor furniture sticking to her sweaty butt. Just reading that sentence, I can feel the pain of childhood summers on that plastic furniture. Sophia's giving us some real acting chops here, as she is clearly comfortably laying upon fabric cushions. Either way, the ladies are happy to help lift her from the predicament. Blanche already has a grip on Sophia when Rose joins in, reminding her she's signed up for servant duty and this is a perfect example of work she can do. Holding Sophia's arms in the air like she's holding monkey bars on a Harley, Sophia hears Blanche's continued refusal and wants in. I'll take a servant. You'll love doing my laundry. I have 60-year-old underwear. It's exciting. It has pockets. You know, I'm not sure how common pockets were in the very complicated multi-layer undergarments of the 20s, but I'm not mad at the idea, especially as someone who isn't fond of pants. Put a little chapstick in your undie pocket. Yeah. That um, would be great for me because I I can't, I've never, I have no idea. I have s several tubes. I don't know where any of them are right now. And my lips are parched. Stop putting your chapstick losing agenda into my pockets for my underwear agenda. Well, well, I would I would want a pocket for me. Oh, okay. I want underwear with big old cargo pockets. <laughs> we could get cargo pants and just cut them real short. And then wear them as underwear? Have you ever... <laughs> that makes me think you don't care about me. <laughs> That's fair. As the fighting and begging continues, the girls throw Sophia back down onto her sweaty, sticky situation. Sitting down under her umbrella and in the cool air of her hand fan, Blanche finally gives in to all of Rose's begging and allows for one week of Winterfergen services. Modeling the autumnal elementary school librarian version of Rose's easy breezy summer squeezy vibe is Dorothy, who comes out to the lanai with exciting news, wearing flowy beige pants, a barely mint green flowy blouse with a very flowy light floral vest that lands at the top of her knees. The great news, Dorothy has submitted Mario's work and he won first place in the writing contest. To celebrate, she wants to host a surprise party for him tomorrow when he'll be over for his next tutoring session. Well, the ladies are just delighted at the idea of a surprise party, especially Blanche, who spent every birthday with George at the country club. It was always under the guise of having a private dinner with her love, but when they arrived, she would have to fake being surprised by the reveal of her friends and family who were there to celebrate her. 
Faking a surprise every year for her birthday was nothing. When she was first married to George, she hadn't trained him yet, so she had to fake it three times a week. Which seems hard to imagine Blanche doing. I've always been of the mind to never do that. You're just teaching them the wrong thing. Blanche isn't alone in the acting department, though. According to the American Psychological Association, 67% of heterosexual women have admitted to occasionally faking delight at a surprise party, if you know what I mean. For Rose, it wasn't an annual surprise party, but a singular that stuck in her memory the most. I'm not sure the odds of landing on an episode with Rose talking about her grandmother's 100th birthday the week of what would have been Betty's 100th, but I take it as a good sign. Today, as we are recording, it is actually January 17th, Betty's 100th birthday. For the Betty White Challenge, which is asking people to donate to animal groups on Betty's behalf, Coco and I have donated to two groups that are close to our hearts. Our own Rose, or Rosie, a.k.a. her birth name of Spicy Chipotle, came from the Vancouver, Washington group Lancaster for Dogs. Boku, our special little guy, came from SaveKoreanDogs.org. He was rescued from a meat farm along with 300 other dogs who were then sheltered and flown around the world to their forever homes. If you're still looking for places to donate, we suggest those. Um, Yes, listeners, please go on our Instagram and look at pictures of these dogs. They're just the most handsome, (laughs) gorgeous angels. And now they're siblings together. When Rose's grandmother, who had grown up in a whaling village, was turning 100, the family held a Viking-themed party. She lived in the barn, of course, so the partygoers hid in the balcony until she arrived. Walking in, carrying a candle, she dropped dead from a heart attack when they all yelled surprise. And you know, I think I agree with Rose. Granted, it would be shocking and upsetting for all of the attendees, but being startled by a bunch of people who love you would be a nice way to go. That reminds Sophia. Should she live to be 100, she needs Dorothy to, no, not promise to not plan a surprise party. She needs her to promise that they can get their own place so they don't have to live with these wackos. As Dorothy leaves to start planning her party, Blanche stops her. She loves party planning and doesn't want Dorothy to have to do extra work, so she'll take over the planning. After slight pushing, Dorothy agrees to let Blanche do it, and after she leaves, Blanche gives a quick look back to Rose, her now official Vindefroren, and she snips, Get to planning, Rose. It's the following afternoon, and in a living room adorned with celebratory banners, balloons, and streamers, Blanche sits on the couch reading, which I don't think we've really discussed. For a woman that is most often referred to as just the slut, it's rare we have an episode in which she doesn't spend some time reading. She's the best role model. In addition to the decorating she's done, Rose has returned with peanut butter ice cream. She had already purchased chocolate ice cream in the morning, but then it was brought to her attention that peanut butter vanilla was his favorite. That's when Blanche remembers. Oh, it's not Mario who wanted the peanut butter vanilla. It was Blanche. It's only taken 24 hours of having a Wunderflurgen for Blanche to really love the idea, even pointing out that if the South had had Scandinavian volunteers to do all the servant work, they wouldn't have had to fight in that disruptive civil war. I'm not sure if this is an oh boy, or if it just speaks to how much Blanche still needed to learn about the difference between a volunteer and a slave. Dorothy, wearing light pants and a top that looks like part sweater, part vest, but was part of that TikTok trend of sewing two rugs together, comes in, asking if Blanche, in an all-beige pant and blouse, has seen the newspaper. 
It's perfect timing for Rose in a blue and green floral dress to enter the room, so Blanche can tell her to fetch the paper. Instead of saying, I'm not a frickin' dog, or you're getting a little too brazen with your requests, Rose simply gives her an okie dokie. Dorothy, on the other hand, has taken note as to Blanche's use of the personal servant. Oh, sure, she's using her a lot, but she knows it's what Rose needs to feel better about the earrings. She'll just be careful not to be disrespectful while doing it. When Rose returns with the mail, she asks if she should read it aloud while rubbing Blanche's feet, just like she did earlier in the day, presumably with yesterday's mail. You know, a respectable request. With a judgmental, I'm calling you out on your BS look, Dorothy tells Blanche everything she already knows, like how that is not an ennobling request. Getting her Vinderfergen to sit down and shut up, Blanche shifts the focus back to Dorothy, who wanted the paper as she heard it included an article about Mario's essay. Taking a page from my mother's book, Dorothy is horrified to find there is in fact an article about Mario, and it includes a photo of her. And she looks just awful. She hates having her picture taken. Being good, supportive friends, Blanche and Rose have a look for themselves. And as the only partially modest Dorothy awaits their compliments to cancel out her own critiques, she's met with, now that's ugly. What's funny here is they just leave it at that. They hear a noise and simply start running for the kitchen. It feels like a line was maybe taken out, like Blanche was going to say she was looking at an ad for foot cream or something. But nope, she just straight up tells her friend that she's ugly. Yeah, like it feels like there should be one more one more comment to finish off the thing. Yeah. What, to finish off the joke. Because she just straight up says she's ugly. Yeah, what would Yeah, there's they... not a moment of like, no, it's fine. Like that kind of would have been funnier or like, now that's ugly, but oh, sorry, I was looking at the picture of insert celebrity or politician. Yeah, there should have been something more to it. But they they just got away with calling her just straight up saying you are ugly in this yep. photo. <laughs> so they, they, sometimes the, they're just not clever. They just were like, we're going to be a, a, a 10 out of 10 cruel. Yeah, we're just going to say like, yeah, Dorothy's right. It's a bad picture. Don't Even if your friend says she feels ugly in the picture, don't tell her she's ugly. Well, don't ever tell your friend they're ugly. <laughs> That's the long and the short of it. Lining up outside the kitchen door awaiting the arrival of Mario, the girls are anxious for the door to open. When it does, the three holler, surprise, to the horror of Sophia, who was getting a snack in her very matronly, yet somehow very trendy for Target right now, floral dress. After nearly having a heart attack, Sophia, of course, has some sassy words about their need to be louder if they're trying to kill her or Mario. As the miscommunication continues, Mario comes in curious as to what all the hubbub is about. In one of the weirdest big daddy moments, Dorothy is kind of annoyed at Mario for, I guess, existing? Whining that you spoiled our surprise. I mean, truly, he literally could not have known. He spoiled nothing. That's such a grandma thing. Stuff didn't go how you wanted, so somehow it's the child's fault? I mean, is that a grandparent thing, or was that just my Grammy? We wasted the good surprise on you. All right. Redoing the surprise, Mario comes back in and gives a marvelous performance of acting surprised. After explaining the party was for the essay and how proud they and Barbara Thomas, who we can only assume is a school crush, are of him, the doorbell rings. At the door is Bert Nesbitt, who is played by Chip Olcott. In addition to the girls, he had five other roles— 
the TV movie Johnny We Hardly Knew Ye, Stranglehold, the Christian Slater film Twisted, Me and Veronica, and the new Leave it to Beaver. And he's there because he's looking for Mario. Turns out old Bert is with ice, and it's believed Mario is in America illegally. That night, gathered around the kitchen table, Dorothy can only feel guilt. If she hadn't submitted the paper, attention wouldn't have been brought to Mario's name, and he could have continued living in the country he considered his home. In an unusual moment, for two reasons, one being Rose and Blanche keep talking over each other, and the other being Rose expressing a kind of callous opinion, she tells Dorothy not to feel bad. It was the teenage boy's fault for being in the country illegally, as if he had any say or control over it. In what now comes off as the most privileged white woman comment ever, Rose tells Dorothy she can't feel responsible, she just has to let the justice system handle it. As if him being deported would be justifiable because he was illegal, whether or not he was forced to go to a country he didn't call home. Blanche, however, can relate. When she was younger, she was the lone witness to a horse theft. Her granddaddy captured the culprit and they went to court. With Blanche on the stand, looking glamorous, of course, after she decided between wearing her fancy cotillion dress or muted hanging dress, she was lucky. She didn't have to wear her reversible dress like what Dorothy was stuck with. Sarcastically, of course. After giving her testimony, the fate of the horse thief was sealed, a.k.a. he was probably going to get to hanging. And for Blanche, justice was served. After a pause for processing, Dorothy then asks, What the hell does this story have to do with the Mario situation? In the most cartoony, silly, perfect tone, Blanche explains she was merely a storyteller. Being vague, the listener can glean what they may from it. But mostly, it had just been too long since Blanche had been the center of attention, and she hates being left out. When the phone rings, Dorothy answers. We hear a, no, he's not here, followed by an, oh my god. Hanging up, we learn it was Mario's uncle on the phone, letting her know Mario had run away. Luckily, she just happens to know exactly where he would go. Cut to a stunning theater with an outdoor box office, home to a young lady bored at work reading a book. Inside, we find a theater holding eh, five patrons and maybe 24 seats. It might be a small theater, but they're lively as a man screams, Rip his throat out! at the screen like he's at a showing of the room. Asking Blanche and Rose to take a seat in the back row, Dorothy starts to make her way to the front where she finds Mario. This kind of violent action movie isn't exactly Blanche and Rose's cup of tea. They'd rather be watching a musical than an autopsy equivalent. This is quite annoying for the man in front of them, and I don't disagree with him. I never hesitate to shush a movie theater talker. Danny Goldman, also known as the voice of Brainy Smurf, is playing the man in the theater. His 87 credits included General Hospital, MASH, That Girl, Room 222, Partridge Family, Columbo, Happy Days, Hawaii Five-0, Kojak, Lou Grant, Chips, Soap, Love Boat, Webster, Criminal Minds, and as the second half to the iconic Dr. Frankenstein joke from Young Frankenstein. I have one question, Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science and not because of my accidental relationship to a famous cuckoo. (laughs) Let's talk about the film they're watching. Dorothy has apparently seen it as she inquires if she's too late and missed the part where he rips the guy's throat out. 
the guy in question we soon learn is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, 1987, Schwarzenegger. Throat rip. Coco, you and I did some research, including watching The Running Man, which does have some throat violence, but not a rip. Other options would be Raw Deal or Predator. Coco, your expert opinion on which film you think they are watching. I feel like it may be a combination of Red Sonia, which he has a part in, uh, Conan the Destroyer, but I really think it's Red Heat. Red Heat is what it reminded me of the most. Hmm. Because I believe it opens with Arnold Schwarzenegger in a Russian gulag. Oh. And he's having a sort of steam bath with all the other buff Russian prisoners. And then I think he escapes by fighting a guy. And they, like, fly through the wall of the prison. And then they're in the snow beating the hell out of each other. That's the most savage thing that happened in that time period that I can think of from uh, Dr. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I have news to break to you. It wasn't out yet. It came out in 88. This was 87. What had? Red Heat. (gasps) I think they just, obviously, they weren't going to pay for the rights to play the sounds of an actual film. So I think they, like, made jokes about everything because there's loincloth, ripping a guy's arm off and beating him with it, ripping his throat out. Throat lozenges? You're going to want to take the whole box. Awesome! Got another throat rip in. Cool. There's a reason Dorothy has no issue talking to Mario while in the theater. He's seen the movie six times already. So she wants to know, is hiding away the choice that you're going to make as opposed to speaking with the immigration judge? With just a nod of the head, Mario confirms her concerns. She knows she can't force him to do anything else. Heck, she can't even get him to spell February correctly. Mario has good reason for not wanting to go to court. He assumes he'll be sent back. It's a valid concern. Dorothea agrees, but just like the man on the screen, Austrian immigrant Arnold Schwarzenegger ended up staying in America and was, at the time, one of the biggest stars in the world. Not only that, he was married to a Kennedy. From 1986 to 2011, Maria Shriver was married to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Her mother, Eunice Kennedy, who founded the Special Olympics, was a Kennedy, sister to Teddy, John, and Robert, making Maria President Kennedy's niece. All of that is great and all, but Mario doesn't want to go back. Dorothy doesn't want that either. All she knows is he can't just run away. She also knows she didn't need to see the size of a hole left on a face when a nose was ripped off of it. Quoting Mario's essay to him, reminding him he has friends surrounding him in America, which isn't exactly helpful when those friends can't keep him there, but anyway... Mario's kind of dismissive about her point, but he finally agrees that if she'll attend the meeting with him, he'll go. And she'll only agree to go if he'll start putting the R in February. Leaving the theater, Rose is desperate to be away from the violence. Blanche, however, is mesmerized by Arnold's muscles and loincloth. Not worried about going with her friends, Blanche heads to the front row to get a better look. In the living room, waiting to hear from Mario, are Dorothy in an oversized pink zoot suit jacket and khakis, and Blanche in a floral skirt and purple sweater, who are waiting for Mario to come by after the judge from the hearing delayed a ruling. All Dorothy can hope is that her 20 minutes of testimony in support of Mario helped to keep him here. Coming out to offer lunch is the Wunderflurken Rose in a casual gray t-shirt, jeans, and an apron, and she's made enough lunch for the three of them which is just so nice, and she's welcome to have hers after she rotates Blanche's tires. 
With the power dynamic of their relationship facing an irreparable imbalance, there's a ringing at the doorbell. Continuing her virgin flirgan duties, Rose answers the door to find Sam Burns. Passing away in 2020 was John Braden, who played Sam. Besides his extensive theater career, including being part of the 1973 Tony Award-winning ensemble cast of The Changing Room, he had 23 screen credits. Outside his voice work in video games like Grand Theft Auto, Liberty City, and Max Payne 2, he had roles on Law & Order, Our Town, It's a Living, Who's the Boss, T.J. Hooker, Night Court, Cagney & Lacey, Remington Steele, The Producers, and Another World. Sam's there because he's a friend of Blanche's and needed to drop things of hers off he had found while cleaning his couch. It's the missing earrings, of which Rose is currently vernderflirting for. In addition to the earrings Rose had lost, he also found Rose's watch. She must have really hit it and quit it. Damn, Blanche, get your stuff before you leave. Realizing what has happened, Rose summons Blanche to the living room, and she fills her in. Sam found your earrings in his cushions. Rightfully, Rose feels an apology is owed. Blanche doesn't. Everyone sleeps with Sam. She doesn't care if Rose did. No, 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 no. Rose doesn't need to apologize for sleeping with Sam. She didn't do that. Blanche needs to apologize for being the one who lost the earrings in the first place. Not having it, Rose demands Blanche sits on the couch and listens to her. Getting in her face, Rose points out, not only did you lose your earrings, you lost my watch, which I didn't even know you had. With a simple, I'm sorry, Blanche tries to make amends, but that will not cut it. Rose has been busting her Hindenburger for a week, doing every little demanding request Blanche could think of, and for nothing. So that's it. She is retiring as a Hindenburger. Trying to make things right, Blanche follows Rose to the kitchen. She knows she'll have to charm her way out of the mess she's made. And if not, she'll just have to eat some Yankee Crow. It's not known where the idiom eating crow originated, but it is believed to have come from an article in the 1850s. It means being proven wrong about something, similar to eating your words. The Yankee aspect is simply due to Rose being from the northern state of Minnesota. With another doorbell, Dorothy is answering, finding Mario on the other side. His face, that of devastation. She knows that he got bad news. Wanting to do anything she can to fix the situation, Dorothy starts to throw out options. We'll call, we'll fight, we'll get started tomorrow. Problem with that being, he's getting deported tomorrow. So Dorothy promises to continue the fight on her own. With a tremble in her voice, Dorothy says her goodbyes, demanding Mario stay on top of his work and that he writes her regularly. They're going to miss each other, but hope to see each other soon. Sending his goodbyes to the girls and giving a final hug and goodbye teach, Mario is out the door and out of the country. Somberly closing the front door, Dorothy is left in a moment of solitude and reflection. Shifting back to the girls in the kitchen, Blanche is making her argument as to why the horrible jobs she was making Rose do were actually for her own good. Before they can settle their issues, Dorothy comes in, emotional, sharing the terrible news about Mario and asking for a hug. Knowing she needs to take care of herself before her big fight with immigration, Rose nearly demands she go get into bed, get cozy, take the TV into the room, and Rose will provide cocoa and cookies. Even though Dorothy doesn't want her to bother, she promises it's not a bother at all. Finally giving in to the self-care, Dorothy heads to bed. 
Turning back to Blanche, who is seated at the table, Rose gives her a once-over and an order. You heard her. Now get to cracking on that cocoa and cookie situation. Bitch! She may not have offered it, but Rose has officially turned Blanche into her Verhandedifleurenfreder. We never hear from Mario again in the series, but I like to think, given that he has the same name, that maybe Mario Lopez and all of his success is representative of how he and Dorothy worked extra hard together to get him back in the States, where he created his own version of the American dream. The theme of this week's episode is guilt. Some people, like Rose and myself, have a superpower of feeling guilt about literally anything. As far as easing that pain, it takes communication. If you would feel better being a Verndenforgen for a friend that you feel you've wronged, and they feel that a servant for a week would make amends, that's great. But it might just take a sincere apology. If it's a situation like Dorothy's, there might be nothing you can do. You thought you were doing something nice, it backfired. It may be easy to look at Dorothy in this episode through the 2022 lens of White Savior, but it's important to look at it through the lens of 1987. This was the year after the Reagan policy of the Immigration Act, making it illegal to hire immigrants, was passed. The girls were touching on a hot topic, not only discussing it, but showing the human side of those affected by immigration laws. Here was a child, a successful student, an award-winning writer. They made it so you were crying when he was deported. It's a lot harder to say, build the wall or send them back, when you put a face and life behind the illegal immigrants, especially when that face is as adorable as 14-year-old A.C. Slater. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we scream at Blanche for being too damn picky in Diamond in the Rough. I love art and I love super cartoony art, which is why I love everything by Spaghetti Toe's dad. Besides being able to request a personalized picture for only $5, to celebrate Betty's birthday, he has made special prints and mugs. You can have a bright, beautiful print of Betty in heaven with animals or the girls around the table, both also available as a mug, the proceeds of which will be donated to LA Zoo Rescue and Promise for Paws. You can find these cheer-inducing items at Spaghetti Toes Dad on Instagram or at the Etsy shop Harp and Squirrel. See Highway Patrol again next week. Until then, remember, reckless driving doesn't determine who's right, only who's left. This is Roderick Crawford saying, see you next week. Did become Nancy Reagan in 1951, and, oh, that was a dramatic breath. <laughs> uh, a bigot's face. <laughs> yes, it's Thank got a vibe of a bigot. Yes, a bigot's face, a white bigot's face. <laughs> Some of her more popular films were All About Eve, The Watcher in the Woods, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Hmm. Some of her more popular films were All About Eve, The Watcher in the Woods, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Oh my God, that's really hard to say. Well, I guess it won't be one take because my brain is mush. Sophia's memory comes back when she realizes. Ziz. <laughs> Aha. What? I, n- I thought I heard a dog. Given the circumstances, she ups the compliment. 
much like in the Bible and the story of Jesus, will we ever know what happened to those lost Lopez years of 11 to 14? I was a Zach Morris girl. I'm sorry to say. Oh, me too. I never, I never was, no. I was a Zach Morris girl all the way. (laughs) I'll call her daddy. (laughs) Leather daddy. Oh, that was good. Mark Paul G. Mail. Get it? Gossler. Yeah, doesn't it stand for Gossler Mail? Yeah, that's what I always knew. Yeah. If if you go to GosslerMail.com, it goes (laughs) right to him, right into MP's pocket. Mark, maybe his email is just Mark Paul G. Mail. Anyway. Hello? Hello? (laughs) That'd be a fun pun. Oh, email puns. (laughs) (laughs) Shave this stuff, it's gold. Slap your doubt in the face. I am. I feel Kick it in the nuts. Throw it off the roof of the building. I'm more just like annoyed. I'm not like frustrated. Like that was all I could think about. They call it a coping mechanism. (laughs) That when they do grasp. Oh. That and when they do grasp a sub. Herm of the Durbel Western Bergen Cheeseburger. That's right. With the Arlsberg cheese on the Cheeseburger. Arlsberg Cheese. I think someone pants, fully pantsed me and my wiener was out in front of a couple of women. That it's really hard to imagine you like drunk with the boys and punching him in his nuts. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the Zoloft. <laughs> and maybe answer some questions you've had about me. It's <laughs> one of my favorite things about this show. <laughs> Reveal Answers yourself, demon. <laughs> <laughs> Life is a highway. <laughs> the guy in question, we soon learn. So, wow, fuck me. Ah, like so gross and disrespectful. So I think that's why it sticks with me. Into a Kennedy. Into a Kennedy, my God. <laughs> oh, Camelot. <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.